I have the right? Hello, sweet dorks. We are new to who. Whether you don't know the old and only the new, we're the chaps with suggestions for you. I'm Dan. I'm Stephen. And I'm Liz. Hey! <laughs> we got Liz Miles on. Thank you so much for joining us, Liz, this time. Uh, thank you for having me on. Thank you. So, Liz Miles, you've got, I guess, you know, quite a, a profile out there in terms of podcast <laughs> land and Twitter. Obviously, from the amazing Verity podcast, yeah. and also more recently with, can we say, friend of the podcast, Paul Cornell? <laughs> I guess we can. <laughs> on on Hammer House of Podcast. So, so Liz, we we like to ask all of our guests. Mm. A couple of things. The first one, I guess, is how did you come to Doctor Who? What's your what's your story with Doctor Who? Um, that's mostly my mum's fault. She was <laughs> a Doctor Who fan since well, fan. She's, she's like a very casual fan. The sort of fan who watches all the all the stories but doesn't like collect memorabilia or anything like that. Um, she's watched Doctor Who since mm. the very first episode and has seen oh every wow. episode of Doctor Who, including all the lost ones, no because, you know, obviously that was, that was her childhood. And um, Oh, because she watched oh them when they were goodness. on. No way. Yeah. Awesome. It's really upsetting. Can't remember anything about them that's actually helpful, but whatever. <laughs> um, so she's seen more than you, <laughs> technically. How galling. Yes, that is true. <laughs> Not technically, she actually has. That's really annoying. Oh, no. Now you put it like that. Yeah. <laughs> Um, you better have her on your podcast I have, I have sort of asked and she's like no I don't have anything to say I don't know anything about Doctor Who and it's like mum you've seen all of Doctor Who you have opinions about Doctor Who you get very angry when we talk about Peter Davison's regeneration that upset her a great deal she, she was a big fan of oh. Peter Davison um, oh. oh that's so lovely Davison's my favourite when I was growing up oh well I think she was in her uh, late, well, somewhere in her twenties then, and um, mm. yeah, and she really fancied him basically. So she was very sad when he turned into Colin Baker. <laughs> <laughs> so she eventually got used to Colin Fantastic. Baker, but she was very upset about him at the time. Oh no! Um, but yeah, no. so I I was born in the in the mid eighties. So uh, when I was a kid who watched television that wasn't um, kids' television or ridiculously young kids television uh doctor who was off and gone forever we thought mm-hmm. um, but happily they began to release uh, the show on vhs and we had a copy of the five doctors kicking about and i watched that over and over and over again i thought it was fascinating Didn't we all <laughs> and i i maintain the five doctors is the best intro to classic who you could ever have Wow! Oh, big cool. nice call. I like that. I, there's quite a lot of people I discovered that their first story was the Five Doctors, and and it's just it's so it's bizarre one... and intriguing, and gives such a sense of of history and weirdness. And you're really like, well, I was like, mm. I want to know what all these things mm. are. Who are these people? What does all this mean? Yeah. Yes. And uh, yeah, that's such a good point. Yeah, and I mean that's that's why I wanted Doctor Who. So I think um, when the VHS for Genesis of the Daleks and Centauran Experiment that came out in 1991 Mm. and my mom (laughs) decided that that would be a Christmas present for me that year from Santa and uh, and so that was my first (laughs) that was my first VHS so my first uh, non-five doctor story was Centauran Experiment Genesis of Daleks which I watched over and over and over again a ridiculous amount of times 
we always talk on our show about about the story that you have like one of the earliest stories you have on vhs and you watch over and over and over so that's like steve wasn't yours the five doctors yeah yeah it was yeah mine was yeah oh man and so yours was five doctors uh, and, and genesis you said shortly genesis and sontaran experiment those were and that's and that when i got to see like ooh a proper doctor Who story you know one that's not I, I don't know if that's that that seems like something doctors, but you know what i mean a regular and i was like <gasps> we get, yeah, we get, yeah. these are amazing i must get more of these yeah. so um for for many many years the entirety of my pocket money went on saving up for doctor who videos and then mm. being very excited and going to like forbidden planets um and reading the backs of all of them and often i would judge why i would judge it was what the running time was (laughs) so if it like had five extra minutes or something because the episodes were a little longer i'd be like i'm getting that one i've got five extra minutes of adventure that's that's definitely worth it um so so, yeah so whatever whatever I, i saw them in more or less the order they came out on vhs with with some missing because they were hard to find or or I missed them, or I saw the Daleks really late on because that was um, that was on two different uh, VHSs, so it was like twice the money for one story, and I was like, no, no, I could get uh, yeah, two, I, I could get two stories, um, and like I, I've I've uh, I've obviously I will not obviously maybe, but my my VHS collection has been um, superseded by my my DVD collection now, but I've still got like a handful <laughs> of videos because they had. Um, uh, what should we call it? Value like nostalgia value, and so I've still got oh, the sentimental value. Yeah, sentimental yeah. value. That's the word I was looking for. I know how to speak English. <laughs> um, but yeah, so what, one, of, <laughs> one of the ones I've kept is Genesis and Saturn Experiment because that was like, um, yeah, that was like my first one and super important. Um, although well, how fortuitous! I'm not. I'm not. Um, I know. I know. That's why I was like, yeah, I'll definitely do that because because like, I've seen Genesis. It's, it's definitely one of my most watched ones. There was a time in my life when I was watching mm, the sorting too, thing like sure. day after day after day kind of thing. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, now because of that, we've got you here to talk about Genesis of the Daleks. Yeah. So we're super thrilled. Yep, so am I. Oh, this it's, is amazing. It's, it's a great story. I, I, I can't... It is a great story. We know that you're a big fan of this. It's amazing that it was your first VHS. I didn't know that. Yeah. So that's even, even more a uh, wonderful reason to have you on. Um, but yeah, we're talking about season twelve. It's Tom Baker's first season, mm. uh, Genesis of the Daleks. Um, so who have we got? We got we got Tom Baker as the Doctor, yeah. and it is his first season. We got Sarah Jane Smith. Sarah like, Jane Smith at the height of her powers, <laughs> absolutely. And, and Harry Sullivan. Yeah. Who was, and we saw this Tardis team in our very first episode when we did Terror of Terror the Zygons. Ooh. And uh, what I, do you reckon? I love this team. I love the three of them. Yeah. I love Sarah and Harry together. I feel like Harry doesn't get an awful lot to do in this story. But I mean, I mean, Sarah gets plenty to do, and they're just a—they're a great team. And it's just like I think two companions is like just enough before it gets to be too like, to be too many characters, too much, too many people to do things with. But this is just the right amount. Yeah, this is season twelve is like okay. To be fair, like half of you know, oh classic who's like I I love and adore, and this is totally my favorite season. But if I really have to cut mm. it down, season twelve is like definitely my top three. I absolutely adore mm, yeah. this year and i completely agree with you sarah and harry and and the doctor the way they all interact with each other it's just it's just delightful yeah. 
and I often get like a little frustrated because like Harry is so underrated and and they're like oh we had to get rid of yeah. him because we don't need two people doing action things it's like they have completely different approaches to stuff they are completely different people <laughs> character interactions are so good and um yeah, mm, and, I, yeah. And, and I have had the odd argument to Doctor Who fandom because also I think this is Sarah Jane's best year this is when I love Sarah Jane really properly I think she's very good after Harry leaves but this this is this is top-notch Sarah Jane this is the the really good stuff (laughs) no she's she's great in this and the the effect like the obvious kind of affection that the characters have for each other yeah um which everyone loves I've always thought that it like it really heightens the the tension when when any of them are under threat or whenever they're separated because you know that they they care about each other they've Mm. they've established that so much so that when they're in peril or when they're torn apart like you really feel you really feel the the danger and the tension yeah Mm. one of the parts that always ranges me because it always made me quite upset as a child right at the beginning when um Sarah gets left outside and then she wakes up the doctor and Harry are gone she can't get inside she's surrounded by dead people I'm just like Mm. I, I would never mm. cope with that. How how can you get through that? Yeah. And yet she does. And it's like, wow, Sarah Jane, yeah. you're amazing. <laughs> yeah. She does get, to, like in this season as well, especially, she has to deal with so much horrible stuff that happens to her, like an arc in space. And, um, and in this one, she's, she's had to climb a rocket. She's put, she's shot at. She's stuffed into tunnels. She's surrounded <laughs> by corpses in a gas covered war, war wasteland. And like you say, she always comes out of it smiling. She always comes out of it swinging anyway. Yeah. She's um she's at I think she's at the height of her powers in this season. Yes, yeah. There's there's a very cool practicality to her that she like completely mm. keeps chill under. Well, no, she's not always. There's t- things that scare her, but like when there's something to be done, she can get she gets so focused and so together. And yeah, mm. the, the the great Sarah J moment here is obviously her her riling up the the prisoners and saying, right, we're escaping and this is the plan and we're going <laughs> to do it. And it's <laughs> like yeah. Yeah, and I love when Harry hears about this. He goes, oh, yeah, that sounds like that sounds about right. Yeah, they're like, yeah, we found a female prisoner who's rolling up the uh, insurrection, and we're like, yes, that's Sarah Jane. She's made the news. There, they don't even get that much time to to joke around with each other that that um that much. You know, those times when sort of Sarah and Doctor are kind of like in cahoots and they've got control of the situation and they're just having a sort of a giggle with each other. They don't get to do that that much in this one. It's, it's mostly gloom and terror. Yeah, there's some really nice <laughs> moments, though some lighter ones. Um, like at the beginning, in the very first episode, I get my heart swells a little bit when Sarah and Harry appear and and they're holding hands as they struggle up the slope, and that's like, like that's really sweet. Aww, yeah. And then when they're wandering <laughs> yeah. across the quarry and um, they find the the dead dude, and Harry makes his off color joke of playing rock music, eh, about finding it's like finding game with just a radio, and Sarah makes a face, and then a couple of minutes later. The doctor finds a minefield, another very serious situation. It's like treading my footsteps, and she's like, "Oh, like good less. And then Harry's the one who pulls the face, and I just think that's oh, that's so adorable. <laughs> so that's very sweet. And yeah, I think I think Harry does get quite a lot to do here in terms. It's li- it's little moments. It's not a big flashy rebellion thing, mm. but I love him with the with the mine when the doctor treads in it, and his yeah. face is like so steady and concentrating, and like no, I'm not backing up. I'm staying here. It's like reminding us that he's, he's not so just loyal, yeah, yeah, he's he's not just a doctor. He's a soldier too, or navy officer, practically mm. a soldier. Um, mm. And then when he's when 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 they're like captured, and he like neatly gets the gun and he's like completely cool and at ease with it <laughs> that I, was really cool <laughs> yeah I, I i love that i love that whole scene i love um because we, we don't often get to see harry and the doctor and they are they're um like 
bad banter, their their interactions, their chemistry, and I feel like that's that's something that's really here in Genesis, and I really enjoy it. Yeah, it's, and Tom, it's his first season, yeah. and I, I think a long time ago, I remember reading Stephen Moffat saying that he he really prefers Tom in his first season because you can sort of see the actor really striving to make a, a fist of this, you know, trying to get a, a real handle on the character. And we don't have Tom in the imperious phase as we do later yeah. on, perhaps, and, you know, when he's definitely the star of the show. We have yeah. someone who is really sort of feeling out the Doctor and I think comes across as a particularly alien incarnation yeah. of the Doctor. You can see him stretching into it. Like, he's not, yeah, like you say, he's not quite the imperious kind of like dark grand kind of a figure at this point he's still just um he's still feeling it but he's there's all those touches that he's he keeps for the whole reign <laughs> like when he um he's saying something really horrible or proposing something you know some horrible death-defying feet but he does it with that huge manic grin and his big <laughs> eyes and just that, that that huge smile that he brings like that's there from the start and it's mm. nice to see like him fully inhabiting that character from from the start well doctor looks as though we've got to cross the wastelands again yes and that's when our troubles really begin. And also just being so flippant. Like, you know, they're, they're, in, they're about to be interrogated and he asks for tea and he goes... Good, well now he's got any chance of a cup of tea? What? Or coffee. My friend and I have had a very trying experience. Haven't we had a trying experience, Harry? Very trying, Doctor. Step into the security scan! What, no tea? Man, <laughs> so I love the tea bit. When he's like, and Harry's like, well, I better go. And he stops him and he's like, what do you mean, no tea? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I think Good. what makes that is just how serious his voice is there as well. It's um, yeah. it's it's a sort of both I'm making a joke and I understand this is a very serious situation, but I'm also not letting... It's also <laughs> like a power play thing where he's like not instantly doing what they're saying and it's just it's just such a gorgeous delivery and yeah i do kind of agree mm. much as i i love i love later tom baker like quite a lot season 16 Me 17 too, yeah. i Me adore too. but um there's something mm. really magical about season 12 in that i think it's just because he didn't have a clue what he was doing so he yeah. felt right. free to do whatever he liked you know he didn't have a pro- sense of really uh, any restrictions it feels a lot like like matt smith's first season i think in many ways that's his best mm performance because sure. yeah. he's like i don't actually know really what i'm doing i haven't i haven't discovered sort of the limits or the shapes so i'm i'm comfortable being a mm. little i don't know weirder or something um but yeah, mm, it's, yeah. it's just yeah his, this entire first season tom baker's performance it's like every single time he's on screen i think he's just amazing he's doing something i think is so cool like if we took through it by scene by scene, mm-hmm. I could like point to every scene and say, and this is what he's doing here that I think is great. It'd be really boring unless you really loved <laughs> Tom Baker a lot and wanted me to say a lot of compliments about him. Well, <laughs> that, when, we, good. when we switch off the mics, we'll have a chat. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Another another really great moment here is when he's um, when Davros has him and he's, they're doing the interrogation scene. And... Um, Davros is like, you will tell me, you will tell me. And the second time to he's he's he says, um, no, I will not. And it's so angry and so powerful. And it's like yeah. when the fourth yeah. doctor gets angry, it really feels a scary uh, a, a thing in a way that I don't no other doctor mm. matches it for me. When 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 Tom Baker mm-hmm. does anger, I'm like, I I feel like this is a force of nature and he's very sort of scary but not terrifying kind of thing it's just yeah he does he doesn't the pirate planet as well he really fills the room he re- yeah he really fills whenever he does that sort of angry shout because he's is you know and a lot like you say lots of other doctors have like have done the uh the suddenly unexpected angry shout and it's always a, a bit jarring but when he does it it's um 
he really fills the room. It's almost like the lights flicker a little bit, like <laughs> yeah. it's a huge presence. It's like, it's like yeah, a thunder. Yeah. Oh, um, yeah, that's that's a great way to put it. I like that. You're in trouble now. Yeah, <laughs> yeah he, he is wonderful, but um, I think it's behind the scenes as well where we, we start to see some of the magic come through. Mm. This is a particularly uh, much lauded, I guess, production team. We've talked about them before. So producers Philip Hinchcliffe and his script editor is Robert Holmes. I think you and I have probably said enough about these two, so let's yeah. let's to Liz. What, what do you make of this particular period of Doctor Who? Oh, I, I constantly I'm insulting about it, um, and and say things like I hate I hate Hinchcliffe, um, but but the truth the truth of it the unfortunate irritating truth is. Um, well, obviously, I, I absolutely adore season twelve. I think it's perfect in every way. I also think this is peak Hinchcliffe. Mm. This is this is really good. Um, whereas mm. I get oh god, so much of it is so good. And there was there was quite a few that I watched um, that I hadn't seen for a wee while uh, when Doctor Who and Twitch was gone, was gone, was on. Um, one of those was the Android Invasion, which I found out oh, in my ah. memory. It was like that one. And then when Pretty I watched it, it was like eighty five percent. I thought it was great. It was it was yeah. <laughs> it was just a joy, and it's just basically the the villainous aliens. I was like, these are terrible, but everything else was like, <laughs> God damn it, my memory lied to me. This is great. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I think I think my problems with it are that there are not a lot of women. I think that Robert Holmes just Absolutely. is no interest yeah. in writing women. And this is one of the worst times in Doctor Who for it, which is, is just extra frustrating because you kind of you want it to get better as the years go on, not not have a dip. And mm. I mean, that happens. That's how history isn't like one straight line to better and better things. But it's it's definitely frustrating yeah. when you get stories where Sarah Jane is the only woman there. Um, no matter how good mm -hmm. they are in other respects, it's kind of um, quite a fundamental thing to not ignore circa half the population to me. That's that's kind of a yeah. a, a big point. Um, and I think when you're watching it all at once, the, the constant gothic horror vibe gets a little bit wearing. Like, if I watch any of these as a one-off, um, I'm like, that's great, that's really good. Um, but watching them one after the other, I was like... Can we do something else now, maybe? Um, and I don't feel like season twelve has that problem. I think I find they're all very sci-fi, more or less. But um, I, I think they're very different in in tone and and ideas. Um, plus, I, my usual thing that I say is something like, "If I want to watch a Hammer horror, I watch a Hammer horror, and I get Peter Cushing." So um, yeah, yeah. yeah the, the horrible truth is, I I do I really really enjoy the Hinchcliffe era although i'm glad i didn't have to watch it when it was on because i think i'd have got bored um but mm. i say i don't because i think it's overloaded so i feel like i'm trying to balance the scales that this is not the magical golden age of doctor who it's very very mm. good but the magical golden age is patrick troughton god damn it <laughs> so, <laughs> so, um, this de it definitely it definitely has not without its flaws. I think we've spoken about Holmes before and his like um, his bizarre like sort of aversion to writing women in. Yep. The, uh, and when he does, often they're just like they're, they're victims. Yeah. But um, mm. but you, you're right. You make a good point. Like there's definitely there definitely felt there definitely feels like in earlier seasons there are more women characters and more women doing doing different things. And then when Holmes comes along, it does kind of retreat a little bit. Yeah, and it's one reason that I feel. I mean, I'm not. I think. Uh, season 15 is 
alas, one of my least favourite seasons of Doctor Who. I didn't, I didn't, it's, it, I can't get very, I don't dislike it. It's just I'm not very enthusiastic about much of it. Um, even though it has horror fang rock, which is superb. Um, but <laughs> one thing that Williams brought in that I'm eternally grateful for is he didn't really have stories that had a complete absence of women. I mean, obviously, there's is, is, is gender parity. We still don't have that today. But um, at least he's yeah. like, mm. we're not just having the companion here most of the time. So that was good. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, it, you know, to return to the point about the, the Hinchcliffe and Holmes era, I think it's its one major fault. There yeah. Is, there is so much good stuff going on here. And, you know, perhaps the, the gothic vibe is, is something that um, is, is sort of you know, well-worn by the end of it. But I think I can see past that because, you know, they're trying to do something which is to bring Hammer and to bring old Hollywood to kids, essentially, and family tea time television. Yeah. And they do that quite well. But I just can't, you know, through adult eyes, you don't notice, well, I didn't notice it as a boy. As a boy, no, I no, probably neither, didn't neither did I. To be neither honest. Did I. But it's it's when you see that glaring absence of, as you say, half yeah. the population of this planet and you just sort of think... Why was this the case? I mean, this is something that I can't really defend outside, you know, to, if we're talking to the not we, I can't, I can't explain why there would be so yeah. few speaking um, roles for women over three years. Or even just, I mean, not to be glib or anything, but even just to have some guards in the background that are, that, you know, because there's lots of male guards in the background flying around without lines and things like that, filling out the yeah. background. And the scientists are, as well. Like, why, yeah. why, yeah, there's no reason not to have that them. That annoys me, definitely. Yeah, I mean, is that, is that casting as well as just Holmes' just writing? I mean, because these are people who don't have speaking roles. I have no idea. <laughs> I don't know how television works. I just watch it. Um, but certainly that's... Yeah, t- I, mean, that, that, yeah, that's I just a- consume it hungrily. I, I, yeah, I, I, one of the things I do tend to pay attention to now, because uh, there was a... Oh, I can't remember, was it a... Study or something. Anyway, they, we still have background scenes that they tend to be circa thirty percent women um, instead of half oh. um, today. And obviously, oh, wow. well, not obviously, but it, it wasn't. It wasn't. It was worse before. Um, but the, so that oh. is something that I've, I tend to pay attention to now in Doctor Who stories. Cause, uh, many of them I've seen so many times that I'm just kind of like looking for new things. And so it's like, what are the background characters yeah, doing yeah. this scene? And yeah. like <laughs> it's, it gets so frustrating because you've got stories like um, Ambassadors of Death, where you've got a couple of women scientists in the background working away, and then a few years yeah, later, yeah, yeah. it's just yeah. like, no, we've 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 forgotten to do that. We just won't have we don't have women in in the little bit parts anymore or in the background. <laughs> and it's like, why why have you done that? Why have you made this choice? And uh, and it doesn't mm. even have the. I, I mean, I think it's a, a lousy excuse of it's of its time. And um, if you're going to discuss something of its time, you also have to and hold it up as something great that should be still watched today in any way. Then you have to also consider mm. how it looks to modernize. I think I think I don't think e- either sure. perspective should be forgotten. Both of them have a great deal of value. Um, but but you shouldn't make that excuse if you're still saying this is television that should be watched today. You have to discuss that aspect of it and and why it's you know not very good um what was my point here i had a point yes um but you don't have that excuse here of of its time because earlier stuff did it better so why have they decided yeah. to do it not so well here and and it's a decision it is a decision you can't just say they didn't think about it you, well great they didn't no, think no, about no. it that doesn't excuse it because you didn't think about it um but yeah mm. it's it's the most frustrating thing and and yeah, and just be, and I should I should add because you always you get you say something like that and you get people being incredibly <laughs> defensive sometimes and it's like 
I am allowed to criticise things I love. Yeah. It doesn't mean I don't love them or think Genesis is one yeah. of the ten best stories ever made. It means it's got this massive, huge <laughs> flaw and it's okay to talk about it. Yeah. Agreed. Yeah, definitely. So. Some of my favourite some of my favorite Doctor Who stories I still love to tear into because that's just that's part of who I am. I like to <laughs> I like to make fun of things that I love. Or, you know, find you know, find faults and things like that. Yeah, I think I think um I mean my, my favorite kind of thing is is that sort of um it's not ironic enjoyment you genuinely enjoy it but you can also poke fun at it mm. um that that's the kind yeah. of attitude I, I prefer to take like it's i felt that was very big on on doctor on twitch it was one of the enjoyable things it's like people made jokes people poked fun but they were also really <sighs> enjoying it and really appreciating the good bits and, yeah. and stuff like that um and i i mean i'm generalizing here but it, it does tend to feel like a lot of uh fans who grew up in the 80s with the show tend to be a little a little more defensive, which is completely understandable because mm. that's when the show sort of stopped being this big family show and started to be more niche and started to get that kind of that kind of mockery. So of course you're gonna get defensive about the thing you love when yeah. that happens. Um but you know, it's it's um thirty years later now, so so may, maybe yeah. time to move on a <laughs> tiny little bit. Um but yeah. <laughs> All our sweet dogs out there, if you get defensive, that's totally fine and we love you. But we probably will just reply with a sunglasses emoji, <laughs> as we've said before. Oh, God. Uh, Steve, if you were going to sum up Genesis of the Daleks in a staggeringly beautiful jewel of a sentence, what would that be? <laughs> um, it probably wouldn't be this. It's The Doctor is sent back in time by the Time Lords to avert a future where the Daleks become the dominant force in the universe. Can the Doctor fulfill his mission for the Time Lords? And does he even have the right? <laughs> Love it. Love it. Beautiful. Okay, so I think we're going to probably be edging the... We're on the edge of spoiler... Oh, Steve, Liz, I think I've just... That's it. I've stepped on... I'm standing on a landmine. It's going to blow us into spoiler town. Just get clear. Liz, Steve, just get clear. No, no, I'll, I'll wedge something underneath it. Make it firm. Make it firm, Steve. All right, I think that's probably... I'll just very delicately raise my foot and we'll get clear and bam. All right, that's it. Thank you guys. We're in spoiler town. <laughs> All right, so uh, where should we start, guys? I mean, where else to start but at the beginning in that quarry? You love this quarry, Liz. It's a very good quarry. I love this quarry. It's one of my favorite quarries. Um, I think because, well, partly it's because I saw it in childhood, so I didn't even realize it was a quarry. Oh. I thought, <gasps> Oh my god, this is a scary landscape of death, and um, and that kind of impression remains. But also, it's a very appropriate quarry. It isn't just random alien planet. It's there's a huge war going on here, and there's been so much weapons and explosions and poison put into the thing that it makes sense that the land is you know a desert of rocks and miserableness. And they've also got such a lot of good mist. The mist is very cool and atmospheric. I feel like it's maybe it's the first time of ever that I was watching Doctor Who where I was like, this quarry is appropriate. I think I've written that. It's in my notes. You've basically read off my notes. It's, <laughs> it's like a, uh, finally an appropriate use of a quarry, not just as a stand-in for like a barren alien landscape. It's like it's a looks like a you know like a World War One, like a Great War battlefield. It's just like scarred and pitted, and the, the like the walls of it are really high and vertiginous, and there's just all that smoke everywhere. It's just a great use of a quarry. Uh, and uh, that's that sound effect. That's uh, Quarry of the Month Club sound, sound effect. 
Uh, because this quarry is, it just happens to be Betchworth Quarry in Surrey. <laughs> just for you people who care about these things. Which is no one except me. <laughs> well, I can tell you, Dan, that it, it's no longer a quarry. It's been filled in. Oh, you told me this, <gasps> that yeah. the quarry is that, that like, how deep, you can never go there, Liz. No. Now you'll never go to Betchworth Quarry. Um, I can't believe they, that's, because that, that thing, that it's pit massive. is monstrously huge. Like, they're deep in that pit. Those walls are so high. Yeah, it's all filled up. That's how oh much rubbish God. I guess we produce. But there you go. But no longer a quarry. What a great opening. All that smoke beautiful. and mist and like all those, uh, when those soldiers, those sort of like great war looking gas mask soldiers walk in, uh, it's so like, it's such a great image and it's like ter- immediately terrifying. I love the opening shot. I mean, you definitely have that sort of World War One vibe going on, but the way in which that sort of casually uh, sort of dissolves into the scene with the Doctor and the Time Lord. <laughs> And they seem to be standing in exactly the same spot that the massacre just seemed to, to take place. Yeah. It's so chilling. It's brilliant. Mm. Yeah, I, I think I think the atmosphere of the whole story manages to kind of maintain that that level of, of chilliness, which is, is something pretty impressive because, you know, you can get this great opening shot, you can set the tone, and then you can completely ruin it, especially in a six-parter. But I really feel like it keeps up... The sense, the sense of threat and dread, which is partly why I object to, to the edited version of this, because gosh darn it, you're not taking out in any fill. There is no filler in this story. It's all adding to the tension. <laughs> like, when, when, it does, yeah. When, when the Doctor and Harry first escape, one could argue, wrongly, that, you know, they're escaping, <laughs> they get captured again. What is the point of that? Mm-hmm. And it's that that's not filler. That's not filler. That is um, world building of Callid society and what's going on there in in the bunker and just how scary it is and how relatively effective it is and um and it also serves to to characterize Nider and the way he reacts to their escape with you know with Raven we were like oh god this incompetent silly general spouting propaganda and and then Nider turns up and it's like <laughs> oh my god who's this guy this is really really scary and he immediately yeah. he's, ob- yeah. he's obviously not fooled and then he's like immediately tries to gun them down and and just the way he coolly deals with it all it's like oh my god this this is not good this is not good as a self-confessed uh, filler hawk like i'm always looking i'm always on the out i'm always on the lookout for filler uh and I, like especially in these like these six parters or, mm. or more i'm always looking for something to complain about and um there isn't there isn't a lot like even the tunnel even when they're in the tunnels or the cave um the second time going back, back and forth. It's still, there's still good dialogue in there. And also I love a good monster cave. Uh, so I'm quite happy to go back to that monster yeah. cave anytime. Yeah, I, I, I feel that um, often what's called filler tends to be the bit where a lot of decent character stuff gets done. Like um, my, well, my favorite- yeah, That's true. My, my favorite is, is for this is probably Frontier in Space where there are a ridiculous number of escapes and captures by Joe and the Doctor. <laughs> but, the point is that we get all those lovely character scenes when they're locked up and it's like mm. that I'm I'm completely okay with them running away and getting back in as as them the the little bit of excitement between where we actually get character moments because that's you know that's that's not the the thing that's most often associated with classic who but it's it's there um yeah so seeing seeing Harry make silly jokes about the clams and um yeah, and just oh, the clams. clams. I just think they're an amazing monster. <laughs> it's so 
I love the clam. Like, I really hope that they took the clam props from some other production and didn't make up. Well, I don't know, like some kind of undersea show or something that they, or, a movie or a film that they made. Because otherwise, the only other explanation is that Davros, at one point in his like you know experiments, uh, had, a, had a clam phase, and he's just like clams, are, clams are the future. We, we're we're all going to be clams. And then you know at some point he was like, no, clams are out. It's all sna- it's it's all snails from here. We're going to be snail people. So, you know, uh, I assume that's what happened, uh, you know, and I don't know. I love the, hey, look, I love the clams. Love them. That's beautiful. I love, you know, like he, like he said to us, Liz, before, like uh, how a clam can skitter across a cave floor. Who knows? But it's brilliant. I love it. Head cannon does it have little, does it... or Davros there. That's just perfect. <laughs> uh, on their way to like, you know, being disgusting jellyfish. Uh, he, he had a clam. He had an idea about clams at, at some point. Yeah, so. maybe, maybe that was the start yeah. of his like underwater that. phase. It's like clams to jellyfish. Yeah. That's, a, that's a straightish line, isn't it? Look, he's yeah. the greatest, one of the greatest scientific minds of his time. So I'm sure there's a reason. Question here. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'd like to go back actually to sort of the, the way in which the scene is set. I think you're right, Liz. There is, because it is six parts, I guess they sort of feel like they do have the time and the space to let the characterization breathe, but particularly the world building. Mm. I think it's amazingly done in, in, a, in a very tight episode one. Like it goes from set piece to set piece to set piece. And there's exposition along the way, but I never feel like it's a bit of padding or it's just like a, you know, something that we need to do to show something on the telly for five minutes or whatever the case is. And it starts, you know, as we said, from that opening World War One sequence, you got the, I think it's one of Tom's best scenes in all of Doctor Who, the the conversation that he has with the Time Lord. You know, the, the dialogue is, is amazing, the way that it sets everything up. Mm. There's a Time Lord with a high collar. <laughs> yeah. The first one that we see, by the way. <laughs> and w- what I really like about this, and this is, again, if we're talking headcanon, so this is really reminiscent of, of Bergman's Seventh Seal, right? You're saying this, yeah. Mm. And that character of the Time Lord is is clearly meant to be, or at least um, influenced by the, the, the spectre of death in that film. And he shows up with that high collar, which again shows up, but in a much more sort of polished way in Deadly Assassin. You blew my mind with this because you were like, before. <laughs> I never thought about this before, but you were sort of basically saying that the... All of the Time Lord collars in the future yeah, basically are just ripoffs of uh, of Death from exactly. Seventh Seal, which is amazing. <laughs> oh my god! That's true. That, which I, kind I, of makes sense to me. I love that sort of filmic genealogy that comes from it. It's incredible. But yeah, that the Time Lords are essentially you know copied from the silhouette of Death from Seventh and that's, Seal. And that's Hinchcliffe, right? He's, he's always taking from things oh, in, totally. in a way that's yeah. like feels like a you know like a loving homage, mm. which uh, which I love. And I love the Time Lord. He's so flippant in this. It's sort of a almost a. A creepy clown <laughs> is the argument with Tom, and then and the, but um but Liz and uh, Harry never see him. You know they, mm. they're just over there. They're, just, they're somewhere in the quarry. Yeah, but uh, but they never see him. And it's, you know, so as soon as he's finished, he's, he disappears. They come bounding over the hill, and it's like uh, he was never there. Yeah, and then so strange. You know, the, the other really amazing um, thing that we get in in that first episode, apart from the, the the cliffhanger, more of which later, is that the way in which sort of Nazism is presented to us. It's not even allegorical; it's just straight oh. up, right? Yeah. Uh, we see it in in, in part one with Nida and the way that he talks about the mutos being scarred relics. I love that line oh uh, where he says, um, "They're scarred relics of ourselves," and yeah. like, because uh, we've already discovered. From um, from uh, Raven that uh, the these the mutants exist and they're sort of loathed by by the Khaleds. 
uh, um, because they're, they're sort of loathed, you, I didn't expect um, neither to say scarred relics of ourselves. I thought mm. he'd say something, you know, scarred relics of people who came before. But he like he's sort of acknowledging that they're like they're the same people, but they've just been horribly disfigured. Is it by the it's by chemical warfare that happened at the start of the war, right? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Muters are the scarred relics of ourselves. Monsters created by the chemical weapons used in the first century of this war. They were banished into the wastelands where they live and scavenge like animals. In other words, genetically wounded. We must keep the Khaled race pure. Imperfects are rejected. Some of them survive out there. That's a very harsh policy. It's horrible. Your views are not important. And, and if that doesn't sort of clear, bring to mind ideas of eugenics and racial purity and all of that sort of crap Nazi sort Straight of... Straight from the start. Yeah, really. Because I, I remember, I always remember the sort of World War II um, feel for, to the Khaleds, but it was like the, the Nazi sort of feel, but wow, is it really, like it's really strong. It's, it's, it's very unambiguous. I, didn't, I totally did not know until watching it this time that Nida was wearing an iron cross <laughs> around his neck. Oh that was uh, holy, holy hell. That's, yeah, yeah wow. I didn't notice. I've seen this a lot. <laughs> it disappears after, I think, part three or whatever. And the reason is, it's because it's Peter Miles' own Iron Cross that wow. he brought in. And he was he was made to remove it because it's just too, that's too on the nose, right? It's far too on the nose, even yeah. the, um, even the Even the insignia they have on oh, the collars. Oh, little collars, A little yeah. SS that's insignia. That's so SS, yeah. Wow. But, um, wow, it really, so I just think it really adds to, I mean, obviously it makes them seem a lot more evil. and um, But all this, the black uniforms with the high collars and all the heel clicking and, and just NIDA, man. Yeah, like, NIDA is amazing. Far out, yeah. What a character. This, this is Peter Miles, who's, who's recently you know, left us, unfortunately. Uh, but what a, what a lovely, genial man he appears on the DVD <laughs> extras. But probably plays one of the biggest bastards in all the Doctor yeah. Who as NIDA incredible performance from him i was not prepared because we watched the um special features which i'd never seen straight after and i was not prepared for how delightful and lovely an old man he was <laughs> i just wanted to hate him but i couldn't he was so sweet yeah i, I think that nidus performance is one of the, the things in this that just keeps that threatening atmosphere the whole way through he is so scary hmm. and uh even just in like he's willing to sort of question Davros but his absolute loyalty to Davros and what his orders are in the end I mean that's that's like yes. a true believer in this cause here thing and that's they're like kind of the scariest ones and um, I think I think one of the the great things that the sixth party gives it the space to do um, is to give a fairly nuanced portrait of the Khaled society and the the different yeah. mm-hmm. um, pressures in it because we do have this is a, 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 a dictatorship more or less overseen by Davros even though there's some nominal democracy he's mm. the one with the real power but there are there are tensions between the the elite SS who've also co-opted the scientific establishment and what is effectively the Wehrmacht with uh, represented by General Raven and then the civilian yes. government that's still there and you I really really love that scene where they they go Harry and the doctor are off to see the civilians who might still have the power to shut down the bunker and Raven's there supporting them he's kind, he's he's on their side now he <laughs> yeah. agrees with this even though he's still eaten eaten up all the propaganda he's still yeah. like this yeah. is this is terrible and that's i mean that's a fairly 
nuanced thingamajiggery for yeah. for what's essentially is it's, it's a bit part he's only in a couple of scenes isn't he such a great jack booted wild-eyed zealot like um, yeah uh, Ray, Raven, yeah. Oh, yeah. wow. He's yeah. so much fun to watch at the start when he when he captures them. He's just yeah. eating up, and he eating just, up that screen. I, I wonder how much of it is like he's spouting out this propaganda because he desperately wants to believe in it, and yeah. how much yeah. is is it, it, he actually takes to heart because because he does the way he interacts with Niger and he's like trying to challenge you taking all spies, but he doesn't have the either the 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 power or the authority or or he's too much of a coward to really deny it hmm. it's and then to see this that it's just that's he's he's not a good person but he's also like not irredeemably terrible and wanting to see these dalek things take over hmm. forever so you know yeah, yeah. Uh, it's you're really right about the sixth party giving a story room to really ex- sort of do a little more than usual they really sort of explore that sort of relationship between the push and pull between sort of like the civilian government uh you've got your sort of military ss kind of elite the science and the scientist sort of mengala kind of nazi scientist division and oh, how the, the sort of yeah. pull of push and pull of power between them all and it's really oh, it's so great i just um yeah and because i'm i haven't seen it for a, for quite a while and i'm more used to four-parters i was actually surprised when um the civilian was it the governor of mogram shows up and he um and they start to have interplay between all the factions. And I was just so pleased that they had time to give it. It's great world building. Mm. It really is. There's that complexity. It's, it's what you say, Liz. There's the, the sort of military aspect. There's the elite aspect. Mm. There's the, the civilian sort of government. And somewhere up, up above the bunker, you know, seemingly, you know, presumably are the, the millions or billions of, of Carlas just going about their daily life. God knows what that looks like. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's all there. And I just think it's, it's, you know, that can only really come from the time allowed it to, to world build in that way. But we really only see it, most of it from the bunker. This is yeah. like this horrible claustrophobic spa- space where it's even a little bit like, you know, it's a Hitler's bunker where the, sort of the end of the That's war totally is what nearing it is, yeah. and it's like all that tension is building and yeah. um, it's just getting more and more desperate. And uh, like when they, um, so when um, even the scientists sort of turn against them and they're all holding guns, sort of not on Davros, but they're, you know, standing around him holding guns, holding a vote. That's what it feels like. I just love how he, um, like, because they start talking about democracy and I was like, Davros cannot be down with democracy. And he just like, that's the bit where he starts talking about it. And he says the word democracy with this like beautifully, it's like democracy. They talk of democracy, freedom, fairness. Those are the creeds of cowards. The ones who will listen to a thousand viewpoints and try to satisfy them all. Achievement comes through absolute power. And power through strength. They have lost. Spits it out. Democracy. <laughs> so I love it. Oh, man, it's so good. Yeah, that's one of the things that I love about Michael Osher's performance is that you can kind of believe him and you can see why the scientists there would believe him because they're all like they think he's a genius they've worked with this guy for years and years they say over again how brilliant he is and how they happily work Mm. under him again and so when he starts to sound reasonable and he does and they really want to believe him you don't think oh my god these guys are idiots don't they know they're all going to die you're like oh my god (laughs) why you this is terrible but i totally get why why you're falling for this even, I mean, even I, I, you know, I've seen so many Davros stories and so many Dalek stories, but even I, for just for a split second, when I think there's a bit where he has the doctor in a chair and he's sort of, uh, you know, one of the one of the options the doctor has is to sort of change the direction of the Daleks. And there's a bit where he says to Davros, why don't you make them a force for good? 
and I think Davros pauses for a minute. Yeah, and you're just like, says, well, I, I mean, do that. that's yeah. I mean, is that so crazy that he could have been turned at the start? But um, but then you realize like he believes that what the Daleks are going to do will make them a force of good, or they'll you know they'll they'll be in charge, I suppose. Which I don't know. It's yeah, crazy. I was just going to say that that's that's one of the the scary things about Davros is you can see where he's coming from here. I mean, they all, yeah. everyone we see, all those scientists, security guys, they accept that their species as humanoids is ending, which is kind of creepy in and of itself. But it's it, the, the mm. idea that they're not fighting against us. They've decided to go with it and they're all on board with that. They're just not on board with how exactly they're going to, to create this final yeah. creature. And, um, and, but Davros is, is like, we have to survive. They all want to survive. They're all doing that. But he is like, no, we must survive. We absolutely have to do it, whatever it takes. And this is the only way he can see how to do that. And um, yeah, it's, it's, it's uh, I, I don't know, I guess a, a lesson in how terrifying any absolute is. And uh, that he's, he's, so he he kind of has a point, you know. If if everyone's um, a aggressive little blob in a in a box in the universe, they're probably not going to fight each other. Maybe it's a terrible point. <laughs> <laughs> it's it, it almost spins the origin story of the Daleks around this story, so that it makes it about their survival. Because we right up until now we're used to them just being a force of uh, aggression and war and destruction and xenophobia, but this is kind of brushing the painting the the start of it is davros is just trying to make them survive but like uh, it's at the cost of losing who they are because they, they lose their moral center yeah i mean the, the whole story is appallingly tragic and that more and more just gets destroyed and destroyed and destroyed in the name of survival and um i think i think i think you're right there that it's it, it will mention the the, the cybermen origin stories that we've had there's a kind of fascinating contrast between the, the people who were being turned into cybermen and not realizing what they were doing to themselves until it was too mm. late. And the Khaleds who knew exactly what they were doing to themselves and were working with mm. it. And that's kind of, that's really interesting. I like that. I, 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 I don't know. Yeah, no, that's cool. Yeah, I, I particularly think it's it comes to the fore in the way in which the Doctor and Davros talk in that amazing scene in part five, which I might sort of get into that later on in terms mm. of the significance of it. But just to go on to that point, I think what you have is Davros seems to have a very strict conception of what survival means. And for him, mm. survival or peace, if you like, comes through suppression of diversity and all things must be alike. You know, he says, uh, you know, it's a historical inevitability that one race oh, uh, dominates yeah. the others. And that's a very, horrible. yeah, it's a horrible, narrow interpretation of what history might mean. But, you know, on the other side, we have the example of the Doctor and the watching audience who 29 years after the Second World yeah, War know very, that, very different. Not that long after, yeah. Who, who say, well, no, you don't have to achieve it that way. You know, survival and peace can come through harmony and through diversity rather than through subjugation and dominance. And that seems to be like the, the critical dichotomy between the two characters and the two, you know, what we see, what we see with Davos and what we see this, with the Doctor in this story for me. Yeah, I go with that. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so it's like survival at all costs, and I um, mean, they're sort of they're, when they're making the Daleks, he's sort of turning and warping what the Khaleds are like. Um, but even even so, there's like there's lots of little hints and little foreshadowings and little parts of like Nida and and um, Davros both of them. Like like Nida himself is almost he's almost already a little bit like a Dalek in the way yeah. in the way yeah. he talks and his like bl- blind loyalty 
to to Davros, mm. um, and uh, the way that Davros, like when he gets uh, worked up, he starts to sound like a Dalek. Yeah, like, yeah. I love that's such a great idea, it such a be- beautiful little touch, uh, and it really sort of yeah foreshadows that Dalek because we don't get an awful lot of Dalek stuff happening until sort of like, yeah. I don't know, halfway through. And that's one of the things I really, I think that's almost a hallmark of like some of the best Dalek stories because yes. I think we said before, yeah, during Remembrance that they're not overused and they don't mm-hmm. really come into it until halfway through. And most of the story is really about the people who are uh, proxies for the for the two factions. Yeah. Uh, and in this, like the best, I think like the best use of the Dalek is right at the, like in the, at the end of the first episode. And Steve, you said like, this is one of the best. You said to me, this is one of the best first episodes in all of Doctor Who because it packs so much in. And then at the end of it, the reveal is, it's sort of like a double reveal of the Doctor, of Davros and the Dalek. But it's yeah. not its not a shock reveal of they don't explode through a wall or like, you know, show up and there's, there's a crash zoom into them. It's just like a very calm Davros whispering quietly in real darkness, in real shadow. <laughs> and this fully formed Dalek turns and, uh, you know, blasts these um, these dummies. And it's just such a great... A great intro and it's so understated and uh that is not an awful lot there's not endless dalek shooting people and there's you know at the end there's there's plenty of um dalek carnage uh but a lot of it's off screen yeah especially when they're when they're sort of conquering the thal city um and i think it's just a really good idea not to overuse daleks and dalek voices because it can great after a mm. while because mm. they are a little bit one note and because because they're a little bit one note they're allowed they're allowed to be in the story because you've got davros and um and nida and the Khalids on one side and the doctor and so it's mostly about them that's one of the things i really love about this story yeah i think that has kind of similarities to, to power of the daleks which is my favorite dalek story um where Ooh. it's all about the the politics that's happening between the humanoids and the power struggles yeah, yeah. and then while the daleks are sort of there until the daleks are seize the moment of of just wiping everyone out and it's uh you know, it's it's an interesting metaphor for you know there there's the Nazism just sitting there whilst other we with other people are arguing, and then in the end it just kills them all, uh, which has obviously <laughs> no relevance to anything today at all. So um, yeah, I I, I I I like that structure of it. I find it really kind of frightening. Like um, obviously Colony doesn't exist, but um listening to the, the the destruction of the colony and the galaxy going through it is really mm. really creepy and i think they manage yeah manage quite well with that here yeah as as you said and and thaldom i think the scariest bit actually is is when betten's hiding in the in the might be a quarry might be a set think probably a set and the daleks and sort of half shadow at night are, are rolling along oh. just above her i'm like yes. oh my god oh my god don't make a sound in the trench yes oh, Liz, this is okay this is probably my first memory of Doctor Who and it was before I was even a fan and I was probably like you know I don't I don't even know if I was in school yet but the image of the purple sky yeah. and the Daleks gliding overhead with the, the Doctor and Betan yeah, yeah and the smoke and the barbed wire with the Doctor and Betan crouched you know paralyzed with fear almost as the Daleks um, glide overhead that is such a potent image and it wasn't until like I saw this story again in the 90s that I thought oh my god I'm transported back to a period where my memories aren't even half formed yet but that image is just something that has stuck with me since before I can actually you know remember what life was like cool yeah it's an amazing amazing image I love it so much there's there's so many yeah there's so there are so many shots in in um, Genesis where the like Steve and I were talking before about about to each other about the lighting and how dramatic and like 
dark and well used it is and like there's so mm. many times yeah. where the, the shadow of a Dalek like a Dalek shadow will be visible before the Dalek so this is Duncan Brown the the lighting engineer isn't it and, sure. I, and you're right is this the first time that we have this where you know as you say it's it's, it's the creepiness of the Daleks for you know sort of you know really brought to the fore mm. through the the shadows and the lighting and the low lighting and the, the sort of low camera angles as well I, it just looks so magnificent all those low camera angles like, like sort of making the Daleks look a bit more towering and a little scarier mm. and, a little, and a little darker like like underlit like uh not only serves the purpose to make them much more sinister and they don't talk as much at the start because they don't have the voices yet and it makes yeah, them true. a little bit more mm. sinister and scary yeah. but also as we <laughs> saw in the special features uh, you don't see the cracks. You don't see the the cracks and, <laughs> and how knackered the props are because they're the, apparently they're the original like the uh, original three Daleks from that they've been using for years. They Get just out. they just painted wow. them over, wow. gave them a new coat of paint to um to denacker them a little bit because they looked a bit shabby. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. And they look pretty. Yeah, they do look yeah, really classy. Yeah. And I, I think they're also as, w- as well do. as the lighting. They're really helped by by the incidental music, the little Dalek theme of. I can't I can't imitate music, so I can't say the one I mean, but. You know the one. Every time they appear. When they're coming down the corridor. Yes. Yeah. When they're coming yeah. down the corridor together. So the, the drum. And, oh, it's just that, that's and some top. Clashes. Yeah, that, that's some top notch atmospheric music there. I love that. That's <laughs> really very cool. scary when they're Dudley Simpson, I think this is probably his best score. And I really like Dudley Simpson. There's so many things that he does so right over the course of his time. But um, maybe it's because I have seen this so often, hmm. and you know the the visual and the audio cues are sort of imparted in my mind down to the millisecond. Hmm. But yeah, <laughs> I just think it's incredible. And that Dalek theme, as you say, Liz. Oh my goodness! Like that's what I think of when I think of Daleks. That's the sound that plays in my head. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that yeah, I, I, yeah. They should they should bring that back. This is instead of the the <laughs> yeah. new Who one that I've forgotten what the new Who one sounds like now because all I can hear is the Genesis one. But um, <laughs> yeah. but yeah, it's it's just so nicely understated. Sorry, Murray Gold, mm. I love you in many many ways. But <laughs> sometimes, um, God, that's terrible. I'm sorry. I, I apologize, Murray Gold fans. I like Dudley better. Um, yeah. <laughs> sorry, I didn't. Uh, yeah, but I, actually, I do. I don't apologize. Dudley used kazoos. He had bravery and marimbas. He wasn't going to be <laughs> limited by anything. Um, yeah, no. <laughs> I think that one of the other great things about the Daleks here is I, I love the scene with them, all the scenes where they're outside the little lab where they're kept in, just the, the jellyfish bit. And um, one oh, of the, the things, incubator room, yes. Yes, that's the name of the place. But yeah, no, I, I think that's amazing how they just imply how creepy it is in there and what they're like. Yes. And Sarah, we, we've just got Elizabeth Slayton's eyes looking through it with the green glow. Going, yes. <laughs> and um, and yeah, I think, I can't remember what it is. Was it a last minute cliffhanger or something they needed to do with the doctor getting attacked by one of them? Something like that. Oh, strangled I, by the strangled yeah. by the oh, jellyfish. Yeah. I, yeah. I seem to remember something like that. But it's one of my favorite cliffhangers. Just I think that's terrifying. The squid lit. He really looks yeah. like it hurts. Yeah, he yeah. really looks like it hurts. Because I, I, the first thing I do is laugh. Sorry, <laughs> but it's like, but because there's a jellyfish attacking him, like it leapt through the air uh, and grabbed him. But um. <laughs> But he really looks like it hurts, man. Like yeah. it's, uh, it's digging nasty. into his skin yeah. and throat. I think so. I, I think you're right, though, Liz, because you, it's, you see it three times. The first time, mm. the Doctor and Harry look in, and you see nothing yeah. except their reaction. Harry, and their reaction Harry is looks like, like he's gonna be "Oh sick. my goodness, what am I seeing here?" Yeah. And then you see it again with with Sarah, mm. and there's nothing except a small little glass panel and green lighting and thrown smoke. onto it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then and the a third nice time, little bubbling noise see, as well. 
good, good sound. Yeah. <laughs> and the noise. screeching and the eking. Oh, oh yeah, the so little, little shrieking. Yeah. That's all you need to make like. And they look. And like, if the doctor looks that, you know, disturbed, like yeah. you know, it's got to be something pretty scary. Yeah. And because that's seeded like twice before you actually get that payoff at the end of part five, mm-hmm. it makes it even more terrifying. Because in the meantime, you've sort of been thinking, what's Oh my in god, the room? what's in there? Because <laughs> <laughs> we, we haven't seen that. I mean, because the three of us, are, you, we've seen a lot of Dalek embryos in our time over yeah. the years. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, over all these years. But I mean, at the time, for people probably haven't seen was there a is there a Dalek embryo before this I think we see it in Hartnell no um, yeah where, in, where, in the first one yeah 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 the Daleks but I don't think it was too too frequent no like it's not like um, we see it you know quite often now yeah, in New Who every other day yeah yeah. which is yeah. it's done well don't get me wrong <laughs> But uh, yeah. it, it, there was a punch that sort of is is is, is packed through, um, you know, seeing it not so frequently as we do sure. in Classico. Yeah, and I, I think just it's such a great example of letting the viewer's imagination do the work and saving money. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that, that yeah, that is that is really cool. One of the other things I really mm. enjoy about it, going back to like characterization and stuff, is the way that the scientists react to the doctor and his statements of time travel and his weird alien chemistry like when we first oh. talk to ronson and he's like really kind ah. of supercilious and superior then he gets the results from the scanner and he's like <laughs> oh, this is so weird tell me all about it you know he's there's not any sort of excuses or arrogance or anything it's like he's got scientific evidence to support what these people are mm. saying um, so let's investigate that. And I just, I love that. And I love that kind of little bit of contrast with the military just spouting propaganda mm. in Raven. And then we get it in Davros as well. Um, I think that's, um, it's really nice that we, yeah. we have the, the propaganda thing of, of Davros is never wrong about anything. Davros knows everything. And then when the Doctor and Davros actually talk in what Davros is obviously oh it's scientist to scientist here we're having a we're having a nice mm. friendly chat after I've tortured your friend science chat um, and he's yeah. like um, well time travel it's it's beyond my scientific comprehension but hey I can imagine it so let's have a chat about that yeah. and it's like Davros yeah. is aware of the limits of his knowledge and and abilities which again it's a it's a nice little nuance that he's presumably put out this propaganda that serves him really well but he himself <laughs> isn't buying into it because he's too intelligent for that he he understands where his limitations are and i think that's really cool mm. he says something along the lines of it's it's beyond our science but not beyond my imagining not beyond my imagining. such a good line yeah. yeah i've got to think that's bob holmes right he's gone through yeah. and changed so many of his lines steve, it does not sound like Terry so Nation. many times we were watching this today steve jumped in and was like that's holmes don't don't yeah. try and tell me that's terry nation it was really yeah it's really good to me it definitely there, there feels like an awful lot of Holmes in it because there, there is a he's he's the, one of the things I love about Bob Holmes is that he can create characters in about two sentences and you get a sense of who yeah. they are and there's 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 some great ones here I mean there's there's so many I think think Raven and Garvin uh, Garman Garman and Betton and they're they're all you get you get a sense of like who these people are even in just a couple of scenes and they all. They all have a change in them throughout the story. Like Betten goes from being yeah. kind of freaked out and, oh my God, what is this? And then she gets together. She's a soldier. She's going to do her job. And and we get that little shift in Garmin. We, we see he's one of like Davros's right-hand men, but then he gets mm. completely disillusioned and, and organizing a resistance. And it's th- th- these, mm. these little things that, 
that managed to make these people just slightly more real. But you can even do it with like tiny, tiny bit parts. One of my favourites is, is in Terror of the Autons, where poor old Gooch is, is in the radio tower and he's complaining uh. about getting <laughs> eggs again for, for, um, for, for oh, lunch yeah, we, because, we they're, love because they're aesthetically boring. And then he gets killed. <laughs> and it's like, but I felt like I knew that guy because he complained yeah. about the aesthetically yeah. boring eggs, you know? And it's just, that's just perfect homes it's so clear how much influence he had on the script here bless you terry nation but yeah <laughs> love you terry but yeah you're, you're right like he's so good at we said before on the show he's so good at um world building with just a couple of sentences or a couple of words and so many of these characters only have pretty small parts but they really do get fleshed out like just the fact that Ravon um sort of sort of switches sides but he still has that same kind of zealot fervor for the for, yeah. the, for the cause and then you've got like um. Uh, by the way, yeah, I did. I had not. Like, I was trying. Who? Where have I seen this guy before? Guy Signer. And you and you made me realize it's um, <laughs> Gruber from LOLO, which I is not a show I expect that. anyone else to remember. <laughs> I just because I haven't seen this for so long, and Since I was like, how do I know this guy from? And it's like my entire childhood. He was there being a German soldier. Um, yeah. And um, Severin, like Severin's uh, Stephen Yardley playing Severin gets oh, to. He's be- he such a beautiful character. Not many lines and, and not an awful lot to do, but um, but he's such a he really so sympathetic, so noble a character yeah. as well. You know, uh, he helps Sarah out out of you know you know just the goodness of his heart. He doesn't doesn't accept like as the other mutos that because she's a norm she's got to be killed. And yeah. um, the doctor says go back and team up with Bethan basically raise an army and see what you can do. And mm. the look on his face is like yeah that's the right thing to do. And yeah. it's a beautiful yeah he does he gets very little in terms of lines, mm. but there's just enough there for you to really sort of flesh out the character. I just like that they because the, the the mutant the whole that whole mutant kind of faction doesn't have an they don't have an awfully huge role, but because they're treated with such like horrible there's such, such contempt and everyone says the word muto with like mm. such contempt obviously they're like downtrodden and not expecting to have a big life expectancy uh i just like how the doctor brings him in and puts sets him up with the with the thals well with the with um betan mm. and sets him up to help with the resistance and it's just like a like someone's treating him like a like a person exactly rather than like you know a muto yeah i love that it's gorgeous but yeah, I mean, Holmes's Holmes's fingerprints are all over this. You know, there's so so many eloquent little pieces throughout. Whether the Doctor's speech to Mogren and the other counsellors. Doctor, will you please tell the counsellors what you have told me? Yes, of course. And some of what I will tell you relates to events in the future, not only on this planet but also on others whose existence you don't even know of. But my knowledge is scientific fact. Now Davros has created a machine creature, a monster which will terrorize and destroy millions and millions of lives and lands throughout all eternity. He has given this machine a name, a Dalek. It is a word new to you, but for a thousand generations, it is a name that will bring fear and terror. Now, undoubtedly, Davros has one of the finest scientific minds in existence, but he has a fanatical desire to perpetuate himself in his machine. He works without conscience, Without soul, without pity, and his machines are equally devoid of these qualities. And and to the point where like Guy Siner's character actually says that was a an, like an impressive speech or something along the lines, and, he said, and the doctor says he had to be. It's <laughs> so meta that way. It's so cool. But it happens again and again, and and particularly Davros, I think, could have been a very one-dimensional character. Mm. But the the way in which you know we we sort of have that nuance. You said Liz um, drew that example of. 
how he's got an imagination and he can sort of think outside the facts even though the the facts or the propaganda serves him he's able to think beyond that Davros has some amazing lines in this Mm. he uh, you're afflicted with a conscience, yeah. uh, he says to the doctor, and it's it's just one of those those characters that. And Michael Wisher is the definitive I mean, version, but uh, it's no, Holmes who really brings it out. Totally. I think. No, no disrespect to the people who play him no, or no. write him later, because, but I've always felt that like all the subsequent Davoroses are pretty. Like they don't, they don't have as much screen time, they don't have as much time to be developed. But most of the time, the subsequent Davoroses, at least in the classic series, are pretty. They're pretty one note, and yeah. it's just a sort of shouting, and and, uh, and like I really think Holmes, and, and especially, and Wisher, man, wow, what mm. a performance! He's got a giant rubber mask on and one hand, yeah, and what he does, like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, and one hand, which really only does one thing: t- touch one switch on his dashboard over and over again. But he just does it so well. Yeah, you know what I mean? And um, I never noticed like, he's only just, touching one switch. You're killing the story for I, me. I'm no. Someone's gonna someone's gonna tweet us and tell me the other show us the emoji. other. Yeah, sunglasses emoji. Um, but yeah, and just all the the understated whispering. Um, it just all contributes to this like real aura of like um, terror mm-hmm. and creeping fear that all these people. Uh, all these people around him sort of obey him partly out of reverence because he's such a genius, but also because they're terrified of him oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. and his machines he's created. And, and because of that, I have this stupid theory I've just formulated, which is uh, the reason the Daleks have those um, those plunger uh, stick hands that are totally useless is because everyone else in the design team was too scared to, uh, to, of Davros to tell him that they're crap. <laughs> <laughs> and that's how they ended up with space plungers. Uh, because he, he was like these are marvellous they'll be perfect and, and everyone was like yep those are pretty good that's goddamn How, genius I, any- I love it I absolutely something love it oh my god it's the only it's the only thing I can think of, right? I mean, and this is this is the origin story. There's the perfect opportunity for them to tell us why, and they didn't. I think that's, Holmes is just giving us a little nod. Yeah. Oh God, that's headcanon. That's that's great. That's definitely. That's, headcanon, I'm, I'm yeah. stealing that at every opportunity to say that. That's that's my squishy mucusy headcanon. Yeah. Um, wow. But, uh, but also, <laughs> they have, they have this. They also get the chance to do. Um, Dalek, the the whole thing about how they don't have emotions, how they're emotionless, and I've always kind of thought it was like uh, up until Genesis, you know, I just kind of assumed it was a process they went through, like the Cybermen, they sort of shed things that were useless to them, but it's programmed in from the start. Like, um, is it um, it, it's, it's Garvin, right? Yeah, yeah, and he has that conversation with Davros, and oh, he says man. that they're chromosomal defects. It's only little thing, but um, but Davros says they're not defects, they're, they're improvements, improvements, and that's yeah. so crucial, and like it's brilliant writing. I just love that they made it, that it was a deliberate choice by Davros to help them. I guess it's to help them better survive, right? Well, it is, but it's also, the, again, sowing the seeds of destruction and then foregrounding because, of course, one of the things that Garmin says they don't have is pity. Mm. And what is it that yeah. Davros appeals to at the end before he gets exterminated? It's pity, and they say... Have pity! Pity! I have no understanding of the word... It is not registered in my vocabulary bank. Exterminate! Ah, uh, irony. <laughs> yeah, I, I just think I want to give a shout out to the, the Big Finish audio Davros, which I think is it's an extremely uh, yes. good Davros story, and it does it does enough. It, it does it's. I still love this one the best, but it does go for the the nuance and the complexities and the we're going to have actual conversations about morality Mm. here that are quite interesting. It's very, very good. 
one one of one of definitely one of my favorites. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's incredible. Colin Baker and Terry Malloy, isn't it? It's just a beautiful performance from both of those two mm-hmm. in a in a real sort of Doctor versus Davros showdown. Mm-hmm. Uh, wait, that's worthy. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um well, I mean, one of the, if you're going to have a story with the Doctor and Davros, you have to have them uh you have to have them sitting in a room together having a having a chat as scientists and, and having a talk like a philosophical debate you know stating their, their, both their positions and that's like one of the best scenes in this whole story like for when sure. when Davros says after the torture he says hey hang out <laughs> hang out for a sec don't go let's uh let's talk scientist to scientist show me your, your test tubes you know like, let's do this and it's Davros if you had created a virus in your laboratory something contagious and infectious that killed on contact a virus that would destroy all other forms of life. Would you allow its use? It is an interesting conjecture. Would you do it? The only living thing. A microscopic organism. Reigning supreme. A fascinating idea. But would you do it? Yes. Yes. To hold in my hand. A capsule that contained such power. To know that life and death on such a scale was my choice. To know that the tiny pressure on my thumb, enough to break the glass, would end everything. Yes. I would do it. That power would set me up above the gods. And through the Daleks, I shall have that so good like that's maybe my favorite part of the whole the whole story i'm gonna go even further i think if if you were to try and distill a scene out of all of doctor who um that sort of underscores what doctor who is about i don't think you can go any further than than that scene because essentially it's the distillation of good in the character of the doctor and the quintessence of evil in in the form of davros Mm -hmm. and you're right you sit them down yeah, in chairs, and you get them to talk to one another about worthy philosophical, you know, points and discussions and and differences that they have as characters and what they stand for as well. It's an incredibly British way of representing that drama as well. I mean, if it was you know American or whatever, you'd probably have a shootout <laughs> and then, yeah, and wise, wise. No disrespect little, to our American. No, dogs. none at all. It's just what, a different what way Australians of telling stories. Do? Right? A better way. Oh, I don't know. I'll yeah. probably buy it from America or the or the, or the British. <laughs> yeah, or just do the talking, but with more beer, probably, and with a yeah. <laughs> There is there is quite a but there is a lot of British like, like the Doctor and Harry and Sarah are like I love how they're still unfailingly unfailing, British in this one like the 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 tea the tea crack at the start <laughs> and then there's a bit where like someone's pushing Sarah and she's like don't push all right don't push all right don't push <laughs> so good no but I, I think it stands yeah, that right. the idea that as a morality tale which I think Doctor Who is in many regards the way in which you sort of have a very sort of almost like a western liberal ideology that's underpinned our societies for hundreds of years going up against something that was ultimately defeated at the end of the second world war uh, it's it's gorgeous and and I think what's really lovely is that Davros can't see the limits of his argument. Like, he doesn't understand why he could be wrong. You think so? Yeah, I don't, I don't think he can. I don't think he can see it. Because, you know, he had that opportunity in terms of, you know, making the Daleks a force for good. Mm. And he goes, nah, probably won't. And the reason why... <laughs> the reason why... That is, is kind he, of what he says. No, but, no, 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 you're right. But, He's kind of like, but the re- nah. <laughs> but the reason why is because he fundamentally believes that the only way that you can have 
ultimately peace is through a, domination, a, a, like a governing race. Yeah, because because I've always yeah because he does go on about it. they do always go on about exterminating all races that aren't Daleks. But his he has a kind of vision that sounds like he wants Daleks to rule the rule the universe, like rather than eliminating all other forms of life. This, there is one of his speeches here where he sort of pictures them at the head of the, at the you know, ruling over everyone with an iron, yeah, with sure. an iron plunger. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Uh, no, I think I, I, I think that's that. Yeah, that's one of the great scenes of Doctor Who. And um, sometimes, you know, I get like uh, received vanish wisdom and stuff, and I feel like this has always been held up <laughs> as one of the great scenes. But I can't fault it it's so good yeah. and i don't even know how many times i've seen it and it never feels like it gets any less good i never get bored of watching mm. it and uh yeah i think i think one of the um important things generally speaking between uh, a villain and a hero or a protagonist and antagonist is for me if they really work then they should be able to sit down and have a drinky together and a conversation. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Which often isn't possible with Doctor Who villains because they're just so... um, uh, Just too mad. Yes, basically. They're just a bit (laughs) out there and ridiculous. And they're like, I'm not wasting my time. I'd never have a drink with you. I'm going to kill you in a way that you can escape from instead. Um, Which I enjoy. You can't sit down and have a cup of tea with Sherry's Jack, man. (laughs) It's not going to happen. Kind of could almost. I mean, he was like he was capable of like a conversation cup of tea. without. I'm thinking more of um like uh the captain and the pirate planet, or or maybe <laughs> yeah, Lady, Lady yeah. Adrasta. They're 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 not like the most. Let's let's just chill for a moment and consider our positions, kind of people. Um, <laughs> but but Davros definitely is. Even though I think this is more a thing where um, I don't think the Doctor would be happy to sit down with a cup of tea with Davros. But Davros would be like, "You are damn well sitting down and having a cup of tea with me, or I will shoot yeah. someone." <laughs> you know, I, I think that's interesting. That it's often it's often the hero who wants to sit down and have a chat. But here, I definitely think it's the villain who's more interesting sitting down. Great and point. Sit. Yeah. Um, Absolutely, is, and I think it's it, I think it's because he's so cerebral. Like he, he, you know, he's um he's like the doctor. He's the smartest man in the room. He kind of yeah. thinks that everyone else around him is isn't you know up to his intellectual standards. And he's again, he's finally met someone who can talk to scientist to scientist. And I think that's yeah. I think you're right. I think he did. And um, I think it's also part of his like self image that he's he's doing this for for good reasons. And he of course he can sit down and have a civilized chat with someone because he's a civilized person. He just just because he wants to destroy everything doesn't mean he's not like <laughs> down, down for for a cup of tea and a bicky. Um but, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, it's um yeah, it's 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 a great scene. And uh, and the flip side to that scene, uh, I think, like the other end of it, and the the second greatest part of the whole the whole story for me is the obviously obviously it's the bit where the Doctor has the chance to. Blow up the Daleks. Do I have the right? Just touch these two strands together, and the Daleks are finished. Have I that right? To destroy the Daleks, you can't doubt it. But I do. You see, some things could be better with the Daleks. Many future worlds will become allies just because of their fear of the Daleks. It isn't like that. But the final responsibility is mine, and mine alone. Listen. If someone who knew the future pointed out a child to you and told you that that child would grow up totally evil, to be a ruthless dictator who would destroy millions of lives, 
Could you then kill that child? We're talking about the Daleks, the most evil creatures ever invented. You must destroy them. You must complete your mission for the Time Lords. Do I have the right? Simply touch one wire against the other, and it's it. The Daleks cease to exist. Hundreds of millions of people, thousands of generations can live without fear, in peace, and never even know the word Dalek. Then why wait? If it was a disease or some sort of bacteria you were destroying, you wouldn't hesitate. But if I kill, wipe out a whole intelligent life form, then I become like them. I'd be no better than the Daleks. Yeah, such a great the, the dialogue in there. Again, Steve was stepping up and down yep. and saying, Holmes, that's totally <laughs> Holmes. Um, it's true. And I think this is so well written. Uh, and it also, like, it's something I've always remembered since uh, as a kid, like that that sort of moral choice where even if you have the opportunity to commit the genocide, which is another word I've learned from Doctor Who as a child, yep. a concept mm. that I learned. Um, yeah. Um, uh, the, even if you have the chance to wipe out wipe out this race, go back in time and change the future. You know you don't know what you don't know what you're going to do. You don't know what you're going to mess up, and what you know. Some races will be better off because they made friends because of their, <laughs> they're united in fear against the Daleks. But even bigger than that, do you have the right to wipe out a race? That's the bigger question. I mean, that's sure. yeah. Do you? That's what he's tackling. Do you have the right to wipe out a, you know a race of beings just because? Well, they're xenophobic psychos who want to murder everyone. I mean, they do kill billions. I think, I think a better question would be, do you have the right to murder a million people in order to save a billion people? That's a good question. Mm. I think that's kind of, mm. you know, do you? It's a great rhetorical question that has a very clear answer. Mm. And, you know, it's, it's often in something like, and I'm not sure if this was a sort of literary uh, influence, but I think it's sort of the Brothers Karamazov by Dostoevsky. And, and there's that sort of dilemma of, you know, essentially along the lines of you could... F- form a utopia mm. but it came at the price of essentially killing a child killing a would child. you do that you know and the moral dilemma or the, the question of of you know the utilitarian right to do so whether it's killing a million people for the sake of saving a billion is is something that i think doctor who doesn't want to not necessarily engage in but doesn't want to entertain because there's always a better way like that shouldn't be the question mm. there's a better way of framing that problem or there's a more creative a more humane way of answering that that dilemma Mm. Um, and I, I love it, particularly in New Who. New Who does this really well. Mm. Um, it sort of examines that aspect of the Doctor, whether it's you know something like the name of the Doctor and the, yeah. the War Doctor. So we sacrifice this to save this, and he's like, "Well, sod it, I'm going to save everyone. I'm not going <laughs> yeah. to do that. I'm because, that game. because because that's the that's the right answer. That's the only answer to that question. And I love that about the Doctor yes. that you know he he sort of says, "Yeah, you know, other races will come together, but really, it's about the fact that there this there's got to be a better way than this." And he's always Right up to the very end, he's always trying to work towards that better answer in Genesis of the Daleks, and that's why he's, you know Tom Baker is my as the fourth Doctor was was my hero as as a kid. I love Sarah in this part. Like I love how she's us, and she's saying you got to yeah. yeah. Like, <laughs> even now, it's like a, as an uh, even now watching it now, I was jumping, I'm jumping up and down in my seat, going yeah, you probably should do it, do it, do it, do it, do it, and you know, and and she's like you know very clearly stating why he should, and you got to complete your mission, and they killed you know trillions of people throughout history and thousand generations and stuff 
but I, I just love her earnestness and her delivery, like Elizabeth Slater's delivery. Mm, just so great. She's, I, like, yeah, I just love her gorgeous, in this part. Wonderful. Yeah, I, I think that that's a great thing for for her character that they decided she was going to, one who was going to do that. And um, mm. and that when the doctor asks her a rhetorical question about killing a child, well, not a rhetorical question, a question about killing a child, um, she doesn't answer it because that's not what's at stake here. It's not killing a child, mm. it's killing Daleks. And I think she makes a really good point for if it was a disease, you wouldn't hesitate. I mean, obviously, the difference yeah. between the Daleks are sentient, but I don't know. Can you be truly... I, I think the interesting question is, is, is if you haven't... If all that your purpose is to just kill stuff, if that's your only thing, does that count as full sentience? You know, we could we could get a we could just slightly alter the definition of sentience here. <laughs> that if your se- no. your only purpose is murder, maybe you, we could just shift you off a little bit. Is that is that morally wrong? <laughs> they they even like uh, they even mirror it again in this little. I think it's a bit earlier when. Um, Sarah and Harry being tortured. It's even kind of reflected in that choice that Doctor he says, "Tell me, you know, all the mistakes that the Daleks are going to make in the future, and I'll I'll fix them." And the Doctor is like, "You know, you can torture my friends, but I can't tell you because I'll be betraying, you know, countless people uh, in the future, like millions of people. I couldn't possibly do that." But because they're his mates, uh, and that's his his big weakness, he does he does give in. Obviously, with the with the thought to get the tape back later. So the do I have the right question is something that I think initially it is, um, I think it's, it's sort of represented in the right way. You know, the doctor refuses to, to blow up mm. the, the Daleks and essentially commit genocide. But of course, we come back to it in the climax and it appears as though it appears as <laughs> a though, change of heart. Yeah, a change of heart, because, you know, the doctor actually goes back into the incubator room to rig up the explosives and, and is about to, to destroy them. What oh. do we think? Well, I think when he when he, when the first time he decides not to touch the wires, it's because, you know, he's like he's seeing that Garmin and the other scientists are getting it done like democratically yeah and turning down yeah. away and that he's going to get beaten but that's the better way right totally uh and, and so Garmin actually turns like, well, up as well to to see yeah all sorted now totally um i love the Garmin just comes in and changes his character kind of changes completely and he takes charge with that magnificent hair and beautiful <laughs> dulcet tones and um and takes charge and like uh, if i was the doctor i would be like this guy's got it like he's he's <laughs> look at that hair He's in charge. Like, like he's fine. Don't don't blow up the embryos. We got this. Uh, so, but is uh, is that invalidated when he goes back? <sighs> I'm going for a yes because by that point there's Daleks hmm. out of the out of the laboratory and in their little machines and chilling around the place and it's like it's less it's destructive but it's, I don't think it's genocide at that point because there's enough out that they'll probably you know they'll just chill and oh, rebuild okay. it with their little suckers and stuff. But he's setting them back. <laughs> he's he's messing up their progress, which is you know it's kind of all he can do at that point. And I think I it feels like I completely messed up this mission. I might as well help out, sort of, by blowing up what I can because I did set those explosives there. I may as well use them. Yeah. <laughs> okay. He does delay. Yeah. You're right. He does delay them, doesn't he? Yeah. By that a thousand is, years. He yeah, says, yeah. That's cool. So he definitely saves some lives, getting pe- giving people a bit more time to get ready, yeah. get the word out, I guess. But yeah, he does at the end of the. The serial, he has that little, at the end of the story, he has that little speech as they're floating away into space. And he's like, uh, he's like, have, uh, have I failed? I don't know if I have. And I'm kind of like, yeah, you did. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he just kind of nakedly has failed. But I, yeah, but wow, what a journey, though, to get to that failure. Fantastic. And I mean, his, I mean, his, you could argue that when he was deciding to leave, 
because he thought that a gunman had it. It's that's kind of partly because of his presence, right? I mean, he he and Sarah like kind of inciting a rebellion and getting those scientists yeah. to think think other ways. And so he, I mean, he, he is his involvement. And then at the end, when they've sort of blown the tunnel and sealed him in. I mean, he's contributed to that directly, really. So I don't think he's he's failed to stop them completely. But no, he's definitely altered the timeline, and yeah. in in doing so, as Russell Davies seems to suggest, has enacted the first act of the of the time war. I'm I'm sure of that. Oh yeah. <laughs> so I think history has definitely changed for the better in terms of his involvement. Don't think he's going to get a gold star though from <laughs> um, from old Deffy. In terms of how that turned one turned that one turned out. Yeah, yeah exactly. Not quite right. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I, I agree. I think that, that the sort of moral dimension of the do I have the right gets undone in that climax. But there's kind of like no other way that you can do it in terms of a narrative point of view, because essentially the, the alternative is that from this point onwards, the Daleks disappear from Doctor Who, which is never, ever going to yeah, happen. Yeah, yeah, you can't do it. <laughs> so we're kind of stuck with it in that regard. But I really do think, yeah, the, the choice to go back actually undoes the good work set up right at the beginning of part six. But there is a kind of victory in the sense that that, you know, we talked about the two great monologues, Davros's thing about the virus and how he would do it, oh. and then the Doctor saying how he wouldn't do it. Mm. The third act or the third part of that, I think, is in the way in which Davros is voiced upon his own petard. Mm. And you have a really clear lesson that Davros has chosen this path, mm. and it's a path of largely violence and all the rest of it, but it doesn't end in peace, as he seems to suggest through domination, that violence just begets violence, and that's the implicit moral just of the story at the end of it for Just me. didn't remember to put that little caveat in there, <laughs> except me. Just like everyone except me. I don't know. You know? But, yeah, um, I'm, you know, again, I'm being flippant, but like that, that scene where he talks about crushing the glass... And sending the virus, you can see it on his like expressionless rubber face. You can see, well, you can see the, the thought going through his mind, and that amazing that delivery by Michael Wisher is like it's incredible. Like oh, yeah. it's just such an amazing moment. And so, and so, yeah, and so because of all that, the part at the end when he is faced with you know being destroyed by his own creations, he says over and over, "I'm your creator, I'm your creator." We know the Daleks, from, you know, we know all about the Daleks and they're, just, they're not going to care about that. They're mm. not going to care what he says yeah. or what he has to say for himself. Uh, yeah, they're going to they're gonna carry out what they're going to carry out. But he doesn't know this yet because he's just, you know, they've only just come onto the scene and he wasn't expecting this. And to see him fall so far at the end there from those kind of lofty heights is, is so much impact for me. I love it. Mm. I think from um, from the scene with the uh, uh, the virus scene would you do it and from his actions at the very end that it kind of it, from those it's he doesn't care about survival of the species so much as he cares about his own power because he, you know yeah. the disease isn't his sorting species but he's like oh, if it was me if i did it if i had that power he's like yeah. totally on yes. board <laughs> and at the end he's like if well if you're going to kill me i'm not having that i will blow all of you up um, in order to yeah, uh, in order that's to true. maintain it, and it's like you—that was your. Shit. If he's exterminated, but they go on, hey, his species survives. But he's like, no, we're not surviving if I'm not here and in charge. So, his his survival ethic is compromised. His um, he's about to, when he yeah, like when he's about to hit the button, that kind of delegitimizes his whole platform. His, everything everything he's been saying before it just kind of throws it out the yeah, window like, he's like sod that I'm not gonna I'm not having that I'm going you're out of here but he doesn't obviously doesn't make it to the button 
I just want that's just that bu- the button's so beautiful. I just wanted someone to push it. Like, yes. You know, you know, when you see a big red button, you just want to hit yeah, it. Like, plus, I just wanted someone to hit that. You button. want to know what it actually does as well. We <laughs> never find out what it does. We don't know. Does it destroy absolutely everything? Was Davros telling the truth? Yeah. Does it does it blow up everything it's, apart from the person who presses the button? We we don't know. Yeah. It's really annoying. <laughs> You know the like the because it says does it say total destruct on it? Yeah. You just want to know what the engine like what the graphic designer and the engineer who made that. It's like can you make a button that says total destruct? Make it really big and red. You know it's you like, just so be what, like what is you're just for? drafting it in AutoCAD, <laughs> you know, sending it to the laser cutter, and you're like, man, this is I got a bad feeling about this. Maybe, like maybe uh, what does this trick. mean? Maybe that's a bluff. Maybe that activates the escape pod that would get have got them out of there. Hey. Oh, there's so many possibilities. <laughs> so many. Very annoying. <laughs> And now, well, Liz, could you please indulge us as we go through our regular moment of cheese with cliffhangers, crackers or clangers? Okay, so, part one. With night falling and now pursued by mutos, Sarah stumbles across a terrifyingly grotesque that, figure. That's a racist... What, what, what's wrong? Some of my best friends are mutos. Sarah stumbles across a terrifyingly grotesque figure in the trenches beyond the Carlid city, where she earlier had lost the Doctor and Harry. In the half-light, a third blue eye pulsing in its forehead, a rasping voice commands what is revealed to be a very familiar silhouette to shoot at a target. The first Dalek is born. What do we think? This is the one. This is my. I think this is probably my favourite one. It's just like, like I said before, it's it's not a shock reveal. It's not a crash zoom. Uh, it's just like a quiet moment where we meet Davros for the first time. He's wreathed in shadow, and he's <laughs> just whispering, which is like Wisher is just so good at. Yeah, Men- menace with a whisper. And you see the Dalek uh, smash out a few targets, and uh, Sarah's eyes go wide, and uh, yeah, and that's it. And it's—I think it's great. It's just so atmospheric, underplayed, and um, underlit, which I love. It's great. The uh, yeah, massive cracker. Yeah. yeah, no, that's that's that is a great moment. I love it. I I guess the only thing that slightly bothers me, never bothered me as a child though, is that it's it's the switch from um, location to studio. There's like two switches from location to studio in the whole story uh, that I'm just a, video, bit, yeah. they're just a bit awkward yeah. for me. Um, but that's like that's the only thing I can really say about it. And I'm wondering who manufactured the targets because, you know, that'd be, that'd be a fun <laughs> job. The, the target factory and you, you have to paint them in and stuff. It's like, what are these for? Uh, special scientific project. And yeah, <laughs> and like they had to ship them out, not ship them out there, but someone carried them out there. And like, can you just imagine like Garmin stumbling <laughs> through the wasteland, having these, these, carry these three targets and like, dude, Davros, why can't you just shoot some rocks? So, but yeah, it's, it's, it's a great scene. I really like it. And as you say, I love how understated it is. It's very nice. Yeah, and I think it's particularly beautiful because you have the double reveal. Obviously, Genesis mm. of the Daleks. If you're looking, if you're um, watching it for the first time, obviously Daleks are going to be yeah. at the end of part one. They we know that, that. Yeah. but it's Davros. That's the other reveal here, yeah. and it's just grotesque and horrific, and probably even more alarming than the but, than the Dalek. And they've been talking about him during the episode, yeah, so you know he's coming up. Yeah, yeah. yeah. so good. Definitely scary. a cracker. Unanimous part two. Uh, leading her fellow escapee press gang up the scaffolding of a rocket to the zenith of the Thal Dome, pursued all the while by shooting guards, Sarah slips her footing and appears to begin the frightening descent to a death far below. And pause it there. Yeah, the freeze frame. <laughs> great. Yeah. Oh, Not the first time under Hinchcliffe. Yeah. Freeze frame's great. Love that. Looks scary. Don't like the resolution very much. It's... Very good, <laughs> apart from Such how it's cheat. resolved. 
Um, <laughs> Mega cheat. Just, I can't believe you cheat that much, so that was just like, really? Really? It's, it's quite a bit. They've got six, they've got six endings to check out, to check out, man. They've got to just keep this moving. Keep making, keep making TV. Keep, keep going. Yeah, so... I think if that was something you had to wait seven days for, I think that's definitely a <laughs> Yes, definitely you're a so right. Oh my God, if you had to wait seven days, you're like, what happened to Sarah? How's she going to survive this? Oh, right. <laughs> Doesn't it? Yeah. Doesn't it look good, this scene? Like like you, like you said, they switched to film. And film, man, yes. it looked, the colors are amazing. Like mm. her... Uh, uh, that she, yeah, like Sarah's outfit looks uh, amazing on film. Not that it doesn't look amazing anyway, but like, whoa, holy crap! And the colors and everything it just looks fabulous. And uh, like she's being, yeah, she's gone through so much, and now she's being shot at by people from below. Uh, yeah, and then they cheat the. Yeah, I don't know. It's a bit of a bit of an in between for me. I think it's a it's a clanger for me. Probably. I think, I think I like if, you, if you had this seven days in between, you probably forget that she fell outside the gantry. So it might work there if you're enforcing that. Yeah, yeah I, I, it's difficult. I don't want to say it's a clangor. I just want to say, don't cheat. It's not good. <laughs> but it, it's, it, yeah. Yeah, okay. But it's kind of exciting. I, I think it's a cracker in and of itself, but I'm not gonna I'm not gonna talk about what happens at the end of part three, uh, start of part three. Rather, I'll talk about what happens at the end of part three because I think. We're not going to argue. We're not going to uh, reach a consensus on that one. But it, at the end of part three, whilst attempting to sabotage the Thal rocket after freeing the Muto and Khaled slaves, the Doctor is caught by a Steve. Thal. Stop saying Muto, man. It's like it's <laughs> insensitive. What? They call themselves Mutos. It's fine. Is caught. By, uh, the Doctor's caught by a Thal guard who electrocutes a nearby fence, sending Tom Baker into classic pained Doctor face acting. Yes. Through the tunnel. The electrified fence button. You got to have one of those on every rocket launch site. Uh, and luckily, it was within reach, and um, that's the, another another great Tom Baker pain face. When like when he's so being hurt, he really turns it on, and it's just like those teeth. I wish they hadn't zoomed quite so so sharply <laughs> on those early teeth, but I mean, it's seventies Britain, man. Like you know. Oh my god. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not. I, just, um, I, I like it. I like. I'm just worried next time I see it, I'm going to be looking at the sodding teeth. Nah, they're not that bad. I think it was just. I think it's just our copy that we had that we were watching, but um. <laughs> I like a I like a good Tom Tom Baker pain face, uh, and You're I so love good at it. Yeah, I just love that that button is just there, like without a without a safety panel over it or anything. Like that. It's just <laughs> yeah. What if someone accidentally nudged it with their toe? <laughs> Why is there an electric fence? Why is there like a super electrified fence around this rocket? I yeah, don't know. Anyway, it's, a, it's that, great. That's I a like good point. it. I'm I'm not a fan of this one. I don't entirely know why. I mean, there is the kind of. I don't understand why there's a sudden electric fence there aspect of it, but also I just yep. I just don't feel any excitement about it. I'm like, hmm. I don't I don't really want to know what happens next because I sort of know they'll switch the sodding fence off and he's caught. It's not, yeah. There's <laughs> yeah. there's it's not exciting yeah. in the way that the first two have been. You know he's gonna he's gonna be fine. Like he's just gonna. Yeah, this is another arbitrary plot contrivance. We need one because we're at the 25 minute mark. In the same way that Robots of Death has cliffhangers that way mm. as well. Yeah. Um, yeah, it just takes us from point you know A to B along the the story, and it kind of does it, but it's it's not a great cliffhanger, so a clanger for me. I yeah, it's just the Tom Baker O face. I'm I'm down with it. It's good. <laughs> it's a cracker for me. Let's let's move on. <laughs> okay, so part four, tied to a malevolent looking chair with protruding electrodes, the Doctor is menaced by the face of evil himself, Davros. Davros barks at the Doctor, telling him to tell the secrets of all of the Dalek losses of the future, increasingly becoming a Dalek himself by the looks of it. I like this one. 
I it's <laughs> it's kind of scary. I love the shouting. I tend to like quite shouty cliffhangers a lot. I don't know why. It just I, I should think about that more. I have no idea why, but it, it, they they do work for me. And it's it's scary. The doc we're in the middle of a scene here, effectively, and we don't have the conclusion for the scene. And I want to see, you know, I I, I want to see what what the doctor says next, what Davros says next, how the the resolution yeah, yeah. of this tension mm. is. And okay, we know the doctor's not going to die, thing, but is he actually going to tell him? Is he going to find a way out? Those are good questions, and we don't know the answer to those. So, I like it. Uh, a cracker. Mm. Uh, in, like, in addition to being really good time travel writing, I think it's like it's such a good idea. Mm. I I completely forgot about this, and I think it's such a great idea that Davros is smart enough to know that he's got a time traveler here who's seen future Dalek battles oh, yeah. and failures, and he's like, "Well, I've got you here. Well, have a seat and t- you know, pull up a chair and tell me all these all these failures so I can admit them from future programming." <laughs> and I think that's brilliant. I think it's just a great idea. Not only that, but when he turns that pain dial, he turns it like just the tiniest bit. And like uh, Harry and Sarah are in agony, and like when you see someone turn a tiny dial at the start of um, turn, turn a dial a tiny bit at the start of an interrogation, <laughs> you know at some point it's going to get jacked up to the max, right? <laughs> I'm not sure if that actually happens after the cliffhanger, but that's one of the reasons I love this cliffhanger because I'm just like, oh, he's going to turn it all the way up. Yeah, it is good. This, this is great, it's and of course, it's for all of those reasons, it's got to be a cracker for me too. So, part five then. With Sarah and Harry waiting with bated breath immediately outside the Dalek incubation room, the Doctor seems to be taking an awfully long time. Cue an extreme close-up of Tom Baker, again with classic pain Doctor face, as he stumbles out of the sinisterly glowing green-lit room with the Dalek mutant attacking his neck. (laughs) (laughs) I just imagine it flying across the room. Um, I just love, as I said before, love a Tom Baker pain face. Uh... Love how he comes out of the, he bursts out of the door, and they don't seem to go, to go immediately to his aid. They sort of just, <laughs> you know, just hold off until the sting, till the sting, right? Uh, but yeah, he really, he really sells the pain, the pain, and like, uh, I, I love this one. It's a cracker. Yeah. For me. This is my favorite cliffhanger of the story. I just, I just love that he's he's having to fight off the Dalek mutant, and I love that I love how committed he is to it. I believe that thing is trying to strangle him, and it's just it's quite sudden as well. I can sort of remember like the the early times I saw this when just like oh we're really nervous. What's in there? What's happening? Has something happened? And then he just bursts out, and there's a there's a. Mm. Tentacle Brussels sprout attached to him, and it's it's that's scary. <laughs> I was scared, and uh, yeah, I just I just yeah. think it's yeah. such it's a very cool image to end on, and uh, yeah, my favorite cliffhanger of the story, uh, cracker. Yes, yeah. I agree, cracker for me as well. Yeah. Not only is this my favorite cliffhanger of the story, I think it's the best cliffhanger of the entire Hinchcliffe oh, era. In wow. the same Ooh. way that Scaroth is of the Williams era, the Scaroth reveal at the end of part one of City of Death, it's this one that I just, I think, typifies and encapsulates that sort of I mean, wonderful horror. And I can, the best Hinchcliffe. I love it. I, mean, he's I love wearing, it so much. He's wearing a jellyfish bow tie, man. I mean, it's pretty good. <laughs> and you're right. You're right, Liz. Like, he really sells it. And I, lo- I love that. It's great. Wow, that's a big call. I just love it. It's it's, it's a Dalek attacking the Doctor. Oh, it's, it's got a primeval a... Dalek, and it's kind of yeah. like changes the idea of them from being helpless jellyfish strapped into death machines yeah, yeah. to being pretty poisonous, hateful, sure. nasty creatures on their in their own world yeah. that can leap across a room, uh, presumably. Yeah, exactly. Um, my fa- <laughs> it's, it's definitely a cracker. My my favorite part also is like in the in the the next week part, the next episode at the start. 
they don't just tear off one <laughs> one Dalek mutant and throw it into back into the room. They do it three times. And so I'm like, is that three mutants or do they just tear it into three pieces? <laughs> and just yeah. chuck it back into that room. Yeah. That's nasty, man. It's gross. Oh. And like, oh, doesn't Sarah doesn't Sarah wipe her hands as well? She's like, oh, gross, because it is gross. Yeah. yeah. Oh, all right. Unanimous. Yeah, okay. Wonderful so. to hear because that is definitely my favorite of the entire Hinchcliffe era. Part six. Then, with Davros seemingly dead and the Daleks seemingly entombed, Betan, Severin, and the Rebels say goodbye to the TARDIS team. Sarah asks the Doctor how he feels about having failed in his mission for the Time Lords, but the Doctor imparts his own words of wisdom. From such great evil no, must come something here. good. Well, I'm not entirely sure how much good comes from the Daleks, but I've always found the end very satisfying in just just seeing them, yeah. you know, all hands on the time ring and then them swirling around into space together with that sort of twinkly noise and off to back to the TARDIS yeah. after yeah. this epic adventure. And it's like, it is, it is kind of a it's a nice like feels like a sigh of relief a moment of of peace and contemplation <laughs> after mm. everybody dies horribly um yeah, yeah. so i i, I really <laughs> like it millions I, of deaths yeah i think i think it, it hits the right note for me it's um yeah a, a, a peaceful moment where he's trying to look on the best side of it even though i don't find that entirely convincing yeah <laughs> well it's the yeah it's the extra reverb they put on his voice that kind it's of sells it yeah. yeah it's good it's like let me put, let me tell you again with reverb now you're <laughs> but i i really i do you said before they said they get to say their goodbyes to betan and company and I, I really like that because many times in our podcast we've um, yeah. been annoyed that they don't get it they sort of sometimes they just slip away like when they slip away because the people are negotiating and they're busy putting their world back to back into back together and they just sort of like yeah we should leave these guys alone like we'll back off it's no big deal we'll say goodbye um we won't say goodbye uh sometimes they just slip away without saying goodbye or they don't have enough time to finish the episode and they just kind of like say a crap joke and bail uh i like that they had they took the time just to say a little goodbye it means a lot to me it's only a little thing but i like it no i i love the character of betan severin is beautiful and that the you know that they acknowledged him in that way was was yeah the right thing to do they don't even start that character until fairly late on and then yeah they flush her out at the end yeah she's great I, i love that they um they're taking the time ring instead of the TARDIS because it's like a nice yeah. little change. And I love that when they're sort of flowing through space, they're obviously sort of like rolling around on the floor <laughs> as, oh a, as the camera above them spins around. I think that's what it. I assume that's what it is. Oh, I don't. Yeah, I, I love it. I love that. It's great. And sort of Harry, um, Ian Martyr's having a having a joke around because he like rolls on his on his, onto his head with his bum in the air. And that's the that's the end note of the episode for me. Ian Martyr's bum. I love it. It's great. Really good. This is a def- this is a cracker. It's that, like you said, it's very satisfying. Yeah, it is satisfying, definitely, and it's also satisfying in the sense that uh, amongst the first scenes was the uh, you know um, the Bergman motif, the uh, the reference to sure. the Seventh Seal, and we have it again here with the final scene of uh, yes. that film. Uh, and yeah, it's just a really satisfying in every single way. It's a beautiful way to end the story. Mm. It's it's a cracker. I think so. So, Liz, we ask this of every guest that comes on, and we'll ask it of you. Why should we watch this? Why should anyone watch this? It's one of the very best TARDIS teams that have ever been. Possibly my favourite TARDIS team. And they are such fun characters, and they have such good interactions, and they're thrown into a horrible, hellish landscape to try and cope with it. And that hellish (laughs) landscape just so happens to be the origin of the Daleks, which sounds like it should be a great story. And hey... It is a great story. It's dark (laughs) and frightening and there's a fascinating nuance of conflict and character. There is one, a villain that 
we should all be fam- well that if you're watching who you'll be familiar with but i think this is mm-hmm. this is him at the height of his powers this is him being um much more much more nuanced much more complicated than he he is later on and um it's it's. I don't want to say it's. It is fun, but it's. It is very, very dark as well. <laughs> Can you be fun and dark? It, it, it's. Um. It's a great adventure, and um. It hammers home themes in what might be a not very subtle manner, because it is about fascism <laughs> being ultimately self-destructive. Um. But it does it in a non, a kind of a non-apologetic way that hammers home the point, but. It's it works for me because the the story and the characters and the performances and direction it's all so good that you're like yeah okay I can get on board with this it's it ain't subtle but it's really good <laughs> and uh, yeah I, I just I just there is I, I I'm I'm very I suppose I I am very generous to a lot of classic who and that I honestly think almost all of it holds up so well. Um, but this is definitely one that if I were doing a, a guide to classic who for new who people um, of, I don't know, say 10 stories, this would definitely be on the list. It's so, sure. yeah. Su- yeah. such an important story, such a good story. And I think if you watched this story and found absolutely nothing to enjoy about it, that maybe classic who's not for you maybe that might be a huge generalization i don't know i just yeah but if you if you enjoyed absolutely nothing about it then that that might be a clue so yeah it is it is one of the great stories of classic who uh, a great adventure i think you just like you're so right it's like even if you are not particularly interested in the in the nuances and the um the deeper meanings and all the layers it's still it just a great along. adventure yeah, yeah sure there is so that cool. Um, yeah, I agree. I think for all of those reasons, it's it's actually my uh, favourite classic Doctor Who story out of them all. Oh, yeah. Wow, we didn't... What a reveal. Yeah, wow. it is. It's the seventh cliffhanger. <laughs> Whoa. Um, I, I, this this story, probably, you know, due to the fact that I, I remember images of it from mm. before I was actually a Doctor Who fan, from reading the Terence Dix novelisation uh, over and over and again in, in the public school library, from watching, you know, the VHS and then later the DVD over and over again, up until the present day, I don't know how many hundreds of times I would have seen this, uh, there is something unbelievably, gorgeously, perfectly Doctor Who about this story. Um, and it's all of those things. It's the TARDIS team, it's Davros, it's the ensemble cast, it's the themes, it's Bob Holmes and Hinchcliffe. And, uh, <laughs> yep, this is it for me. <laughs> Fantastic. Beautifully said. <laughs> So we've come to the end then of our podcast on oh. Genesis of Daleks. Liz, it's been so much fun. I just can't thank you enough thank for joining you. us. It's been <laughs> thank brilliant. you for having me on. It's been pretty gosh darn fun. <laughs> really enjoyed it. Lovely. <laughs> thank you. Oh, folks. glad. Thank you. Um, so if we wanted to find more of you, where what would be the best way to do this? Like, obviously, Verity Podcast is one of our favorites, oh, and we've mentioned it before. So great. But maybe could you give us a bit more details? And also maybe what you're working on as well. Yeah, Ver- Verity Podcast is sort of our, my, my main podcast, I guess. Uh, we've been doing that for almost six years now. So it's, um, <laughs> wow. yeah, it's pretty good. If you want to go back and listen to us from the very first episode, please don't. Um, maybe try about three years <laughs> in. And then you might listen but to But it's really, the descriptions are so... The descriptions are so good. Uh, when I was scrolling through, it was really easy to sort of cherry pick favorite things. Like I found a Sophie Eldred 
and the ace stuff straight away it was just like <laughs> a, a deep pleasure to hear yeah. you guys talk about that yeah definitely go through the back catalogue of verity it's oh, so good so much to choose from uh, um yeah and the the other regular podcast i'm doing at the moment is uh hammer house of podcast uh with paul cornell yeah. where we are discussing so good every hammer horror movie from the quatermass experiment through to the devil a daughter and we're eight episodes in. I think the next one coming up is might be episode eight, which is uh, the Revenge of Frankenstein, which is oh god! I think this is was uh, this is going to be a, our longest episode, where we're like almost an hour and a half talking. <laughs> we usually aim for like fifty five minutes, but apparently we had an awful mm. lot to say about it. Um, quite a lot of it about <laughs> Peter Cushing because he's fantastic. But yeah, so if, if you're if you're interested yeah. in in Hammer House of Horror, Hammer House of Horror, if you're interested in Hammer Horror or British horror, or um, I don't know, or Peter Cushing. Let's be fair. Um, yeah, we'll talk about that. Who isn't? I, I don't know. I, I, I imagine they must exist somewhere, but I don't know what they are. <laughs> Very recommend if you enjoy. You does. Yeah, <laughs> if you enjoy the Hinchcliffe era, um, then Hammer Horror may very well appeal to you if you've never watched it before. It's very British. Mm. Um, but yeah, and uh, if you if you uh, join our Patreon. Uh, then you also get access to like another stream of uh, horror pod uh, episodes where we're doing the Amicus anthology ones, which are really cool, and uh, episode episodes of uh, films nominated by our very kind Patreons, um, of which mm. have been some very interesting oh, choices so far, and I'm very grateful to have expanded the sort of movies I've been watching. <laughs> I say. Um, politely and diplomatically, <laughs> um, but yeah. So th- those are the two things. I I I can't. Don't think I can. I am working on some quite cool writing stuff, but nothing's um, close enough that I can really talk about. It. So that's a bit annoying. Okay. But yes. Um, yeah, cool. There should be some cool stuff, um, maybe that I I can talk about in a few months' time. So yes, Ooh, that's helpful, isn't it? Yeah, well, sounds great. You can buy the DVD of Genesis of the Daleks from BBC Online or buy and download the episodes from iTunes. You can follow New to Who on Twitter at New to Who Podcast and also on Facebook or even email us at New to Who Podcast at gmail.com. All our episodes can be found at New to Who.com on uh, iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you feel like leaving a million star review, uh, obviously <laughs> that would be great. These things will help people find us. So if you wanted to, that would be great. Uh, we hate goodbyes, so until next time, I'm Liz. I'm Stephen. And I'm Dan. Thanks for listening. Be seeing you. <laughs>